Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Winston Churchill said of Russia that it was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Today, the same might be said of Russia's interference in the 2016 elections and the connection between that interference and the campaign of Donald Trump. We know so much. Every day, it seems new information is revealed to us. Just yesterday alone, we learned more about the Trump campaign and Alpha Bank and how early the FBI was looking into the connection between Trump and Russia. And yet we seem to be missing the Rosetta Stone that will enable us to explain it all. Perhaps Bob Mueller holds that. But until then, my guest, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter Greg Miller's new book, The Apprentice, may not quite be that Rosetta Stone, but it may be the most important piece of code-breaking that we have so far. Greg Miller is a national security reporter for the Washington Post. He was among the Post reporters awarded the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for stories on Russia's interference in the 2016 election. He was also part of the team that won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for coverage of American surveillance programs revealed by Edward Snowden. It is my pleasure to welcome Greg Miller to the program to talk about his new book, The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the subversion of American democracy. Greg Miller, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. It's fascinating that we know so much about this story, that that every day a new layer is revealed, and yet it always feels like there's a missing piece somewhere. Talk about the broad scope of that first. I think that's a good way to frame it, really. And I sometimes wonder why there is this fixation on sort of, I guess everybody's hoping to see a kind of smoking gun um, conclusion here one way or another, you know, and, and I just don't know that it's likely that we will get that. You're right that it's possible Mueller is sitting on something along those lines and we will learn about that soon. Um, but I, I, I guess I think it's more likely that we're not going to see something akin to a memo memorializing an agreement in advance between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. I just think it's unlikely. And I don't know why we look for that when there, as you say, there is so much we already know that is so disturbing. And that's what the book is about. The book is trying to put that all together in a way that's complete and comprehensive, but also understandable for people. Because I have to say, even as a reporter who was in the middle of the story, breaking stories about Trump and about Mike Flynn and so forth, it was disorienting and hard to see the bigger picture. And The Apprentice, I hope, is that bigger picture for people. I guess what people are looking for is, is perhaps not so much that memo, but there's always been this sense that somehow it is tied to the money. I mean, it goes back even to Steve Bannon's comments to Michael Wolff that just follow the money, that that's, that's where it all leads. And I think that's the connection people keep looking for somehow. And Trump, um, you know, through his behavior, certainly um, kind of supports that theory, right? All of his behavior about the money has always been, don't look there. He's, he's got the worst kind of poker tells of any president I can remember, right? So he's asked by the New York Times, would you consider it a red line if Mueller starts to look at the Trump organization's finances? Oh, yes, they definitely shouldn't look at that. Well, if you're an investigator and you have a, a, somebody who is at the center of your investigation telling you absolutely don't look at something, I just can't imagine they're not looking there. I do think that, it's, that, that Mueller has shown us through the indictments of Paul Manafort and Rick Gates and others, 
he he just is able to tear people limb from limb once he gets inside their bank accounts and and their and their finances and i can't imagine that he would have spent any significant amount of time looking at trump and the trump organization's finances without finding lots and lots of concerns mm-hmm. i guess part of what's disorienting also is that every day there's a new piece it's not as if this can stop i mean your book takes us right up to the present and yet every day, even now, there is new information that comes out or a new piece of information that comes out that, that we have to figure out how that piece fits into the bigger puzzle. You're right. And I think that's really, Jeff, is partly how these all just big, big stories, sprawling stories like this always work. Um, I mean, when you look back at Watergate, it didn't make sense to a lot of people who, as they were living through it, and it's only in hindsight now when we look back on it, when we sort of feel like we understand that story and where it begins and where it ends. And we're still in the middle of this thing, and it's a lot to expect to understand that in total, at least at this point. It, this is a moment, though, that uh, we're going to be replaying, reliving, and examining. I think for many, many years, historians will be studying this period in American history because it really feels like a turning point for us. It feels like we are, um, there are momentous uh, things happening that could shape the direction of the country. The other question that, that keeps coming up and when, in reading The Apprentice is one wonders, given Russia's antipathy, Putin's antipathy to Clinton, whether the interference and the way it evolved was sui generis to Trump or might it have happened, you know, if Ted Cruz had been the nominee or John Kasich, would it have been a similar set of circumstances? And if not, what might have been different? That's a really good question. And in fact, you're right. I mean, at the outset, as far as we know, and the U.S. intelligence agencies and the comprehensive report that they released in January of 2017 tells us this, the original game, the original plan for Russia and the Kremlin was to disrupt the election, to damage it, to give America a black eye, to denigrate Hillary Clinton, hurt her chances. Vladimir Putin despised her, wanted paybacks against her. And it's only in the middle of the campaign when Trump emerges triumphant over his Republican rivals that the Russia plan pivots and starts to really support him and swings into action to try to propel him into the White House. Would they have done that for Ted Cruz? Maybe, to the extent that he's not Hillary Clinton, he probably would have been preferable to Vladimir Putin. But, you know, the bigger thing is, I think, that much of the impact that Russia had and in, in what much of the sort of fallout that we're still dealing with now is because Trump is such a singular person and a singular candidate and president. He has um, compounded so much of what Russia was trying to do because he is a divisive, demagogic person. Uh, he, no, I, I doubt that Putin would have been getting praise and getting sort of attention uh, if Ted Cruz had become president or another Republican candidate like Marco Rubio. It's hard to imagine any other Republican in that field siding with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies on what happened. There's also the the degree to which Trump plays this out in the open. I mean, whether it's, you know, Russia, if you're listening, et cetera, or, or his constant praise and, and refusal to say anything derogatory about Putin, 
that that it it's so out in the open that creates so much confusion. It's really confusing and disorienting. I'm glad you raised this point because I I try to write about this in the book at the end to sort of wrap this up for readers to give them a way of framing it. Like it's an interesting mental exercise to think about things that Trump has done in public and how we would react to those same things if we learned later about them because he had done them in secret. And the Russia, if you're listening thing, is, a, is an ideal moment. What if we learned months after the fact that, that Trump had had a secret conversation, an encrypted communication with Russia in which he said, I need you to go after Hillary Clinton with those missing emails and try to find them? I mean, that would be an astonishing revelation, and it's hard to imagine that doesn't lead straight to impeachment. But because he says so in public, right out in the open, we look at that and we think, how can, how can that be anything but a, a mistake or a provocation or just Trump being Trump? We dismiss it because it's right in front of our eyes. Right. I mean, and that goes to even things while he's been president, things like the Kislyak-Lavarov meeting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I, I wrote those stories for the Post at the time that um, you're talking about the early in his presidency when he brings in, you know, here at this perilous political moment, the Russia story is huge, and he's inviting the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador into the Oval Office, then starts talk, bragging to them about his intelligence and discloses highly classified information to them, tells them he got rid of Comey, so the pressure's off of him, now I can really deal with you guys. It's an astonishing moment. Then there's Helsinki. Talk about how you see that in the broad scope of this story. You know, I was there in Helsinki. I traveled to Helsinki to cover that moment. I knew that this was going to be an important thing for the book. So I was in the room in the palace uh, when Trump um, and Putin held their press conference. And it was an electric sort of weird vibe in that room. Everybody knew that their lot was riding on this moment and that there was a lot that could go very wrong. And it was sort of an inevitability about it that, that in that room. And, you know, Trump seemed to be sort of following the script his advisors had given him early in that press conference. And then after the first question, it's just off the rails. I mean, he's talking about the strong denial that Putin gave, how it's America's fault we're in this mess with Russia. Uh, and um, and you're asking sort of what is the broader significance of that? I think that that was a huge missed opportunity for the president that tells us a lot about his psychology. If, you know, he was basically asked, Mr. President, can you turn to Vladimir Putin right now and say, uh, warn him never to do this, never to meddle in an American election again? If Trump had been able to bring himself to do that, we would be looking at him very differently as a president. History would be looking at him very differently as a president. But his inability to do that as a human being, as who he is politically, is what gins up in many ways so many aspects of the story that are still unclear. I mean, that feeds these loose ends in some ways. Yeah, why? There's always this question, why? What does Putin have on him? Why can't he do what would be so beneficial to him? It was so obviously beneficial to him. And I think the answer there is, is sort of complicated. Part of it is tied up in Trump's ego and insecurities about the election. It is, if I ever, ever admit that Russia interfered in the election, then my legitimacy goes down 
the drain, then I'm not the, the president uh, who was elected free and clear, who defeated Hillary Clinton all because of my own magnetism. Um, so he loses that. And that's like one of the most precious things to him. Um, I think that he, you know, he also just sort of has this view and we see it all the time of Putin as this model uh, that he aspires to, or at least admires and seeks to emulate at times of an autocratic leader, somebody who's in charge of a country who doesn't have to put up with the messiness that, that a president in a democracy has to deal with, including a Mueller investigation, including a Congress that might turn democratic. Um, you know, Putin doesn't have to wrestle with those things nagging at him. But ultimately, I sort of write about in the book that, you know, one, we don't know whether Putin has compromise on Trump and sort of recordings of prostitutes or things like that. Could be, maybe not. But what he does have is this clarity about exactly what Russia did in the election. And I write that if in that moment at Helsinki, if Putin had blurted out, yes, we absolutely worked to try to get Trump in the White House. Yes, we had the Internet Research Agency pump Facebook with millions and millions of messages. Yes, we stole those emails from the DNC. I mean, how could Trump, who has argued this is all a hoax, withstand such an event? Is it, in a way, one comes away thinking he probably could? Yeah, I mean, he's so, <laughs> you're right, he's so <laughs> difficult to knock off course that I think that it's possible that even in that moment, he still comes back and says, I still don't believe it. You know, it, it's interesting to also speculate the degree to which a totality of understanding this story exists somewhere in Russia. I mean, one can't help but think about that, that, that as you say, they know what happened. Putin knows what happened. And, and that somewhere in Russia, there may be the, the Rosetta Stone, the answer to all of this. Or Mueller may know a mm -hmm. great deal more. I mean, every indication from all of these indictments, all of them have been highly illuminating. And, you know, this, is, this gave me a, so much material to write about in the book. His indictments of the Internet Research Agency, which is their troll farm, their propaganda unit that was pumping messages into Facebook. His indictment of specific individuals in the Russian intelligence services that were involved in the hacking of the DNC and how they went about it and how they got that material to WikiLeaks are astonishing. Uh, I mean, he has given us, um, and can frankly confronted President Trump with, overwhelming evidence of the reality of Russia's interference in 2016. Mm -hmm. One of the other broader issues in all of this is, is in this hacking race, this espionage hacking race going forward, that, that Russia seems to be so far ahead in that war, whatever you want to call it. And, and that's disturbing on several levels as well. You're right. And, it's, um, and we see more evidence of that every day. Right. Um, and, you know, I think the bigger picture there, we've seen, we've even just in the past week or two, seen new stories about how Russia aimed hacking and cyber attacks against anti-doping agencies that had uh, led to the ban of Russian athletes from Olympic competitions and so forth. Russia and Putin are, are active in cyber and active in espionage in a way that we haven't seen since the Cold War. And America's ability to understand that and defend against that um, is undermined 
by the president's refusal to accept it. Right. So there's lots that the CIA can do, lots that the NSA and the FBI and so forth can do. And they are doing to try to harden our, our defenses, to improve security around elections and so forth. But that's limited when you're there working for a president who describes it all as a hoax. Right. You can't have a unity of government response to this threat when the leader of our government refuses to accept it. There's also a sense, and I can never quite put my finger on why this is, that it seems as if the Cold War, as we all remember it, has somehow been completely erased from the memory, from the hard drive of the country. Yeah, I mean, we went through a, this other period after the Cold War that was so uh, overwhelming. I'm talking about the September 11 attacks and the, and the decade-plus focus on counterterrorism as this all-consuming mission that sort of supplanted the Cold War. You're right, there's a bit of amnesia about what that was like. Um, and, you know, this is another area where ordinarily you would have a president, and, and Obama did this a bit toward the end of his term, um, helping the public to understand what we're up against is part of the role of a president, helping to, to mobilize the public and, its, and focus its attention on the, on the country's challenges and threats is part of that job. And so Trump, in his inability to, to accept the Russian interference, sort of, there's a huge blind spot for us as a result. It's interesting that before the political hacking, the political interference, what really was, was the biggest subject of, of conversation in that world was the idea of corporate hacking, of intellectual property being stolen, and everything that went along with that. And, and given that that ability, A, still exists on the part of Russia and the Chinese and, and others, and that, that this is a threat to corporate America, why there isn't more pushback, why there isn't more of a sense from that world, from a world that, that appreciates Trump on a certain level, to begin to deal with this? Yeah, that's a really good question, and you're right. I mean, they have every every reason and interest in um, taking this threat very seriously. I think there's a complication for many corporate targets of espionage, which is that they hate to call attention to the attempted penetrations of their networks, let alone anytime they lose any sensitive data. Um, it's embarrassing. It makes them look vulnerable. It undermines uh, confidence in them as companies. And so there's always this tension about it. Um, and, you know, you remind me of, a, of another interesting point and in why we were so um, slow to recognize what Russia was doing in 2016, and that is that that is the kind of espionage, the sorts of uh, searching for trade secrets, searching for government secrets and gathering that kind of information that we're so used to and expect from Russia, expect from China and North Korea, Iran and others that when Russia flipped the script in 2016 and used the information it got from the DNC as a weapon against Hillary Clinton, nobody saw that coming in government. Nobody envisioned that that was something a powerful state like Russia would ever do. It's interesting. The, the other overlay to this is the way in which politics, and we, we've touched on it a little bit, the way in which politics and Trump's politics kind of get in the way of the, of the broader story, the way domestic politics does. You go back to a comment, I can't remember what the subject was, 
when somebody talked about what the Russians had done, and Trump's answer was kind of, well, we've done terrible things too. We've interfered in elections too. And how that plays out with, with part of the public out there. And, and somehow that feels like it plays a role in all of this. It's astonishing he would say it as a presidential candidate and equally astonishing that people would buy it right. and believe it. And, it, and it's uh, disturbing and sad. He wasn't talking about election interference in the quote you're referencing, I don't think. He's talking about being confronted. This happened in a couple interviews during the campaign, including one on Fox with Bill O'Reilly, in which he basically, said, basically asked, how can you continue to say such nice things about Putin? The guy's a killer. He has people oh, killed. Yes. And Trump says, what, we're so innocent, we don't do right. this? Uh, it makes this, draws this equivalency between what happens in Russia, where seriously, I mean, journalists end up dead. Activists end up dead at the footsteps of the Kremlin. And he treats that as if that's just sort of how things work in any country, including our own. And it, and it's, um, it brings this sort of moral authority, whatever moral authority the United States has, down, and that plays directly into Putin's hands. That is a direct, exactly the kind of messaging he looks for from the West. There is no difference between the United States and Russia. They may um, lecture us all the time. But they're just as messy. They're just as ruthless. They're just as lethal. I don't want to get away from Russia and, and, and The Apprentice, but we're seeing this play out now in terms of his reaction to uh, the disappearance of your colleague. Exactly. It's been a devastating week here at the Post. A, one of the columnists for our paper who writes about Saudi and the Middle East, uh, who is uh, from Saudi Arabia and often critical of the Saudi government. And there are strong indications that he was drawn into the Saudi embassy in Turkey, Saudi consulate, I should say, killed, cut into pieces, hauled off in a van. And Trump has yet to say anything meaningful about it. Uh, I mean, the United States, um, maybe we've often overstated our moral authority, but when we're not at least trying to provide an example to serve as a model or to serve as a symbol to other countries out there about uh, the, uh, about the rightness and, and, and the protections for journalists and protections for basic core mechanisms of democracy, I just don't know what we stand for anymore. In trying to understand the Russia story. So much attention is also focused on what appears to be the cover-up and the interference and, and, and all those aspects of it. In many ways, that kind of pulls attention away from trying to understand the broader story of what actually happened. That's true, uh, but I would say that it's also, uh, uh, it's also equally disturbing and, and uh, in its own way. Um, I mean, I sometimes get this reaction. I, I was, along with a couple of my colleagues, reporters, we we're the ones who broke the story that Mike Flynn had lied about what he had talked to the Russian ambassador about. That, in fact, before taking office, Mike Flynn, uh, Trump's first national security advisor, had, in fact, had this conversation with the Russian ambassador and told him, sit tight, don't respond to these new sanctions the Obama team is slapping on you guys. We're going to be in office soon. We're going to take care of you. And that he lied about it, lied to Vice President Pence, lied to Sean Spicer, lied to the American public. And some people was sort of dismissed those. Well, isn't this what, you know, government officials in waiting do? They interact with foreign officials abroad. I mean, and here's a three-star general, decorated military career, lying to the American public, lying to the FBI 
about his interactions with the Russian ambassador. He's putting that conversation with a Russian official over his duty to the United States. And I just think that it's ridiculous to sort of downplay the significance that, of that. I mean, we see that even when he introduces Flynn so glowingly to, uh, it, at the CIA the day after his inauguration. Yeah, so the book, I mean, the book opens right. at the prologue with uh, Trump's trip to the CIA right on the day after his inauguration. And what a, um, what a chaotic day that was. And the speech that he delivers there um, in front of this wall that is very sacred at the CIA. It's in the lobby. There are hand-carved stars on the wall. Each of them marks the death of a CIA officer in the line of duty. Their names aren't there on the wall. Uh, many of their names are still not even known. Um, but it is their kind of Arlington Cemetery in miniature. And Trump arrives on his second day in office to give a speech there. And it's just an, a, a spree of self-aggrandizement. He's talking about his crowd sizes during the campaign, how many people came to his inauguration, how many Time magazine covers he's had. And people's jaws are dropping. And... Um, there, in, in the interviews I did for this book, um, one CIA official told me about something that happened in the aftermath that just sort of stayed with me as, a, as an image and still lingers in my mind to this day. When agency people arrived for work that week, some people saw that site as having been so desecrated that they started bringing flowers and putting, putting them at the, at the base of that memorial wall. Um, they were so troubled by what had happened there and the desecration to that sort of sacred space at the CIA. I mean, the book, I really try to help people see the bigger picture and to connect dots on the Russia story, but I also try to tell it in a really cinematic way with scenes like that that take you inside the CIA, inside the White House, inside the FBI, even inside Facebook, and even inside uh, Moscow. Greg Miller, the book is The Apprentice. Trump, Russia, and the subversion of American democracy. Greg, I thank you so much for spending time with us. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you.